Welcome to a very special edition of Wild Orphans, the community art show here on CFUV, of course, at 101.9 FM, 104.3 on cable. And the website for Wild Orphans is wildorphans.wordpress.com, and you can post your own event there by making a comment on our calendar page. And, of course, you can contact us at wildorphansradio at gmail.com. And that was my co-host, Brian. I'm Colin, and we're here to talk with our guest today about the Malahat Review and the launch of their summer issue, number 175. For more information about the Malahat Review, visit www.malahatreview.ca. And our guest, Garth Martins, is going to join us in the second half and in the first half, Andrea Routley. Andrea is a writing student at UVic, and her short story in the Malhat Review summer issue called Habitat is her first short story to be published. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, thanks. First, can we talk a little bit about the background of your writing? Sure. How did you get started? Well, I'm at UVic now in the third year, and we were just talking about this the other day in one of our workshop classes. Actually, the instructor was asking us as a way of introducing each other if we could tell each other what the first thing we remember writing, our first creative writing thing, and the most recent thing we were working on. So what immediately came to mind, I'm not sure if this is really like how I got started writing, but the first thing that came to mind was in grade four, a story that I wrote about a guy named Dr. Jenkins, who was a doctor for seals in the Arctic. Mm. I think at the time there was probably a lot of stuff about seal puppies being killed or something. And what made me really proud of this was that I wrote it really fast. At that time, being the first one to finish assignments was uh, really important to me. And then I wrote another story really fast, at which point the teacher told me she thought I wasn't spending enough time on the stories. Of course, now I have the opposite problem, and I hold on to them for way too long before I get rid of them. So, yeah, yeah I got started by doing it quickly. <laughs> okay. Were you doing quite a bit of writing after that? And uh, as I don't you, think as you were so. In school? I don't think so, actually. Yeah. And I don't. I wasn't really a big reader either. I, yeah. My older sister was one of those kids that plowed through a novel in a night kind of thing, and uh, my younger sister and I preferred to just, you know play together or like make radio shows with the audio cassette recorder and that kind of thing. I don't, I think, because I remember being pretty proud of reading Little House on the Prairie. Like this was a major accomplishment. They actually finished this book and that was probably grade four or five or something like that. But um, yeah, I would say there was like a lengthy dry spell until high school. So you did more, some more writing in high school? and Yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those things you come back to here and again. You have this sort of lingering idea that you should write. And then when you do write something, it, it really sucks. And then you think, well, maybe I shouldn't write. And then, But, you know, when you just keep coming back to something, that's probably a sign that maybe you really should take the time to really do that. Okay. So, yeah, eventually I, when I started going to Camosun College in 2006, I guess it was, and I took a writing class there and, and kept at it through all the horrible drafts. Okay. So. And then you switched over to UVic? Yeah, I took a lot of writing classes there, and to come to UVic, you can submit a portfolio just just to bypass the Writing 100 class, and hopefully you're able to do that, I guess, depending what you submit. And now third year, so is is the bulk of third year writing classes, or what kinds of... Uh, well, because I, like at most in all my writing classes, uh, this might be not that interesting. It's sort of like administrative story, <laughs> but all my writing classes counted as electives, not 
not transferable writing credits. Okay. So if I, when I look back at my degree, I'm going to have an enormous number of writing classes compared to everything else. Okay. I have two writing and two English, and next term I think it's I got three or four writing classes because I'm yeah. just about done my degree program, but I'm still working on the third year. You know, it's just because of the transfer oh, okay. thing that I'm taking like an enormous amount of writing classes. Okay, <laughs> so get you to read from. From Habitat, sure. the, the writings that you do within UVic. Is there a crossover? You publish those like, stories that, that are part of your curriculum? This story I worked on in the second year workshop last okay. year. And I had started this story the year before that. I took a, a month long, not for credit class with Susan Musgrave. I wasn't in school at the time. And she was suggesting, I guess she takes some, a really intuitive approach to writing where you just you just write and write and write and then when you're done, kind of look back and, and see what it's about. And Whereas sometimes I'll take more of a mechanical approach, almost like I feel sometimes that I'm engineering a story. So I, I tried it her way and just wrote, you know, a page a day for 30 days kind of thing. And I had this huge blob of events that I didn't know what to do with. And then almost a year later... I volunteered to be one of the first people to hand in the story, which I did again the other day. I don't know why I do that, but so then I had to really take this this 30-page thing and try and shape it into something, which is good when you're on a deadline to kind of get you to do that. But it was really interesting to do it that way because the the amount of material that you end up with and you these surprising things that come out when you just don't when you kind of erase your expectations of what your story is going to be is a lot more Mm, you just have a little more of that discovery feeling as you're writing rather than, mm. you know. At what point do you realize that this story might be good enough to send it along to the Malahat Review for consideration? What's, when do you reach that point? Were you nudged by a professor? or? Well, I, I mean, positive feedback helps. I like At some point, I usually send my stories to my friend Emma, and but she's a pretty friendly reader. But, I mean, if there is something that's awkward or just doesn't sound right she will tell me so if i get some sounds good sounds authentic kind of thing then maybe that'll be good i don't know i'm not really sure because because even after i sent this one in and the malahat accepted it they had some suggestions for revision and you know some suggestions for the ending which i knew there was something the ending wasn't quite right and so it wasn't even really done until you know it reached the deadline when they had to get it in but I mean I guess a lot of people say that they're never really done you just reach a point when it's time to move on from them and I think that's true and Mm -hmm. I've been holding on to another story for too long I mean I think it's pretty done but (laughs) there's this one detail I'm like oh I need to I need to find out about what's a bad soccer play because I have this something in the story I need to describe this soccer play and I don't really know anything about soccer But my friend Emma is a real sports person. I thought, I'll just ask Emma. She'll she'll give me a couple examples. And I had this at the back of my mind for, you know, some months and then eventually emailed her to ask her for this <laughs> these soccer plays. And she emailed me back. So now I have the information. All I have to do is work that into, like, this two sentences, and then it's time to let it go. But, you know, you're always kind of like, well, maybe I'll get some better. I, maybe I'll just see something else, you know. Mm. But I don't know. I don't think I'm very good at that, at finishing and moving along. So, Here's Andrea Routley reading from her short story, Habitat, that's 
published in the summer edition of the Malahat Review. Okay, I'm going to read a short scene where the protagonist, Ray, is thinking about renovating the guinea pig's habitat. The guinea pig is named Bubblegum, his daughter is Lana, and his sister, who passed away the year before, is named Colleen. So I hope that will make this clear. (laughs) Bubblegum was in her usual spot under the colander. He took a food pellet and held it outside the cave door, clicking his tongue. Come on, Bubblegum, let's have a look at you. Bubblegum didn't move. He made kissing sounds instead, moving the pellet closer, but she remained still. On the floating shelf to the right of the window were a few teen novels about vampires, and beside them, a black seal stuffy. Maybe Bubblegum would end up on this shelf one day. He knew it could happen, like the beetle. He and Colleen had followed it for maybe ten minutes, keeping their distance so they wouldn't influence its course, until Ray picked it up. They took turns holding it on its back while its legs wriggled and clicked. They collected twigs and leaves and used a plastic bag that was caught in the yellow grass to fill with sand and dirt. At home, they used an empty aquarium where a goldfish used to be before it floated to the top of the opaque green water. They made a habitat for the beetle and put it in Ray's room. The leaves wilted, the grass went untouched. The beetle covered itself in sand. They used a twig to wake it up, get it to move, put fresh grass in with it, then flower petals, then whole dandelion heads, but the beetle didn't eat any of it. It moved less and less until one day it had simply dried out. And now it was Bubblegum's turn. She'd get quieter, come out of the cave less and less, and the next thing you knew she'd be in the closet or a free box. She'd be discovered by one of the territorial male squirrels, and then that would be the end of her. Maybe the fox would run off with the rest of her, get scared away by a passing car, and then Bubblegum would be perfect raven food, torn up roadkill. The neighborhood brats would scare off the ravens and rip the rest of her up, throw pieces into the woods or lay guts on the swing set, then take their sick curiosity somewhere else, and that would be the end of Bubblegum. Lan would ask what happened to her, shrug her shoulders, and then go up for coffee or something. Maybe she'd say, poor Bubblegum, but that would be the end of her. What would Colleen say about that? She'd say, how could you let this happen again? How could you let this happen when all the signs were there? I enjoyed that, and if people want to hear more, they, of course, need to get the whole edition of the Malahat Review. But one of the questions I like to ask writers is just sort of the mechanics of writing. When do you do it? You know, middle of the night, where do you do it? Are you a pen and paper, laptop? Just tell me how you write. Well, I guess ideally uh, there's a habit of writing daily, and when I'm not working or busy at all, I usually like to make my coffee and write with my over my two cups of coffee that I have in the morning kind of thing. Sometimes I start by uh, just brainstorming on a page or just free writing on a page and and then jumping to the computer once I'm kind of rolling. And sometimes I find it really helpful to read a short story. And usually before the story's finished, it, it kind of gets your juices going and inspires you to look at something you're working on in a different way or or just using prompts. I don't know. I kind of try and use a lot of tricks, I guess, to get going. <laughs> sometimes it's a grind. <laughs> like this past August, I was trying to write about a gay character because I find typically when I write, I I write about everything except sex and romantic relationships and stuff like that. So I was challenging myself to write about a character and about sexuality. And it's been more challenging than I would have predicted. So I was writing every day, keeping at it, and I still just had this mess of stuff that I didn't know 
what this is going to, what to do with it. And yeah, so that was really tough. So I don't really know how I'm going to work that out. I am try. I got to work it out because the draft is due on Monday. <laughs> this is one of those <laughs> things. But yeah, I'm not really sure how that's going to play out. But I, I mean, being in school, I find really helpful. Just you know, especially in some of the classes, like one class I'm taking with Madeline Sonic is fiction, form and technique in fiction, and just having someone talk about different forms and different ways of approaching a short story. It kind of you know you get the ideas kind of start firing a little bit in your head and you're mm. ready to try something else and try something else and try something else and hopefully land on something that works. And on computer or pen and ink? I, kind of I was doing a little both before okay. I came here. I started just writing in my spiral notebook and then I shifted over to the computer because I was thinking it was maybe this computer was stressing me out and I need to shift over. But I, I think I prefer working on the laptop I've been typing since I was 14, and it's a lot faster, and it's legible later when you want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to switch a little bit from your writings to the anthology that you edited, and uh, that was Walk Myself Home, an anthology to end violence against women, uh, Caitlin Press, 2010. And just uh, if you could talk about the idea for putting that together, all the things that had to go into putting that together. Well, the idea came from a couple of years ago or a few years ago. I can't remember exactly which, but we helped organize a production of A Memory, a Monologue, a Rant, and a Prayer, which is an anthology edited by Eve Ensler, who wrote The Vagina Monologues. And it's a collection of writing to end violence against women, all types of genres. And so we did a sort of dramatic reading of that as part of Loudspeaker Festival. And so I thought it would be a good idea to have a similar anthology of local writers and, and, and non-writers in this area to talk about those things. And so at first, the idea was to have a chat book because we were thinking, you know, on our budget of zero, like what would be realistic and stuff like that. But as, you know, you see the interest from people and the response and, and then you realize that that needs to be a bigger project and, and it kind of propels itself forward too when you have some more well-known people you know, agree to have their stuff included. And then you tell others, oh, so-and-so is going to have something in there. And then, you know, it, it just kind of propels itself forward. And mm. and then I wrote a brick book proposal. And um, Yvonne Blomer, a local writer, suggested sending a proposal to Mother Tongue Publishing, who had lots of stuff, so they didn't have any, any room <laughs> for another thing, but suggested Caitlin Press. And I was just really, really lucky. It normally takes a few months to hear back or so from Caitlin Press. And I heard, I got a phone call like two weeks later and she said she had a stack of proposals and she just grabbed mine and she just really liked what she saw. And so then it really started to move ahead. And mm. yeah. Okay. And you had uh, the launch at the Black Stilt last winter and lots of the authors were reading from from the anthology. Yep. And the... Uh, I'm seeing that, but you also did some readings in in other cities. You're, we were talking a little bit about that earlier, and and some of them were organized by Caitlin Press. Some of them were organized by the uh, the author of the piece. Yeah, well, there's uh, 50 contributors total to the book, so and they're from all over Canada. So, a lo- you know, a lot of people took initiative themselves to organize readings in where they were living. So. There was a couple readings in Vancouver. I believe there's one at the Carnegie. Library, 
I might be mistaken, but there was one at the Joy Kogawa House, mm-hmm. and we had one at the Vancouver Public Library, and I believe there's one in Toronto, and there was one in Nanaimo, and so they were kind of happening all over, and that's a lot to do with just the contributors taking the initiative, and I mean, everybody was passionate about the yeah. project and believed in the good that it could do, and Caitlin Press, you know, was also supporting a lot of those readings with, uh, you know, doing the press releases and providing posters and things like that throughout yeah. all of that. So, Andrea, thank you very much for joining Thanks for us. having me. Pleasure. You're listening, of course, to a special edition of Wild Orphans on CFUV. And if I bring up the right control here, we should have Garth Martins on the telephone. Garth, are you there? Hello, yes. Hello, Brian. Yes, this is Brian, and you're in the studio with me, of course, is my co-host, Colin, who just reached you on the line. And we've got you in Cologne, is that right? That's correct. Okay, and you were once upon a time when I was hosting Wild Orphans before you were also a guest on our show. And uh, can you refresh my memory on that one, Garth? You you were in the middle of your writing course, I think, at uh, the University of Victoria. Uh, yeah, I believe it was uh, two or three years ago. I was just uh, beginning uh, the project that's consumed my time for, for two or three years. And I was with Danielle Genesse. I quite enjoyed, enjoyed my time on the program. And I should say that one reason, and we'll talk to Gareth about this in just a minute, is uh, he's here to do with the launch of the Malahat Review summer issue. And uh, also, Gareth, you're going to be coming down for that, is that correct? That's correct. What will you be reading on that evening? Because you're not actually in this edition of the Malahat Review, though you've been associated with it in another capacity. Can you just fill us in a bit on that? I'll be reading from uh, my manuscript, The Motive of Machinery, which uh, I've been working on as part of a grad thesis. It's well, as well, it, it was part of a selection that won uh, the Brahman Wallace Award. Construction poems, mythological and realist poems based on construction sites and the industry of construction and the people. And if I'm not mistaken, you're working on a construction site in Kelowna now, is that correct? It's always been a part or a theme. That's right. This is actually my last week. I, my last shift uh, is Sunday. It's a 72-hour work week this week. And... Uh, it'll be six months, and then I'll be returning to Victoria for the reading. The site I'm working on right now is associated with a hospital, pouring concrete, rebar, framing, and all sorts of things. Associated with a, building a new cardiac unit and, and morgue, actually. We won't, we won't touch that one, <laughs> what, what the connection is there. But speaking of connections, what's the connection for you between construction as a as a manual labor, skilled, unskilled, uh, all different levels, and poetry? Because you've always worked those together. Well, I'd say the connection between construction and poetry would be, well, particularly I was assembling scaffolding, and so much of the revision process for writing poems seems to me a bit like scaffolding. Finding phrases that work perfectly, and then finding phrases that work for the time musically, but maybe textually don't work. And so, in a way, those phrases that might disappear are scaffolding. Maybe that's a silly answer, I guess. There isn't a a lot connected, uh, but you can always make metaphors. Uh, Concrete finishing, for example, the the attention, the the amount amount of time it takes to perfect the surface of concrete and and is the same as, as the writing process, for me at least. Uh, except I think I'm better at writing poems, I hope. Well, uh, let's find out about that. Are you ready to read now, uh, Garth? Uh, sure, sure, yes. The poem is called Leathering, and uh, it's about a migrant worker. I've heard a lot of stories about workers uh, working in camps up north, and, and this is 
This is about uh, one such worker. Leathering. He travels north from camp to camp. Trailers on dunnage, gravel, rusted barrels, and stacked wood. Tents where men dream cement. Its consistency, its price, the length of its fix. He forgets his reasons, his debts, his wife, works the ditch or drives a spike. There's a stone in his wrist. He craves the cracked up moon, the lake, a place on the mud bank to shout, to drink, to fuck under the stars. He'd like a newer pouch, tools with clean teeth, straight lines to gouge geometry and peat, a level he can trust. Mosquitoes have eaten his skin. His thumb is black. Clouds fatten to the west. What lasts is law. That axis breaks on axis, rain on rain. If he could reach, he'd pull every twisted star with a hammer. Thank you. Of course, when you're separated by uh, several hundred kilometers, I never know quite when the poem's going to come to an end, but thank you. Tell me a bit about where you're at in your program of writing studies. You mentioned you're doing your uh, your graduate degree now. Can you just fill us in on, on what you're involved with there? Well, I, I actually defended my thesis. I finished the program about a year ago, April, and in the year, year that followed, I focused on, on writing more poems, uh, adding poems. Uh, I, I, I successfully defended my thesis, but I still felt there was more ground to cover. A lot of the poems were centered more in the, the day-to-day realities of the characters, and I, I knew there was a, a mythological corresponding reality that I, I wanted to increase. And uh, because the poems that existed that were mythological felt a bit, bit like a speed bump, and so I wanted to make more speed bumps so that they would be, it'd be evened in a way. And so the, the poems lately have been a bit more mythological, uh, but I, I feel I'm honing in on the last two or three poems and I'll have to uh, call it quits, or I'll never start writing anything new. <laughs> and you were on the Malahat Review Poetry Board for the last, what, the last three years as well? That's right. What did that entail? Well, uh, at first I was an intern, and then, and then I became a, a, a regular editor, but the work was the same. I looked at the uh, unsolicited submissions, the, the, the submission pile that filled several shelves, and read through, provided comments, uh, rejected, passed on poems, and so forth, and uh, participated in the editorial board meetings, and also looked on a lot of envelopes and applied a lot of stamps and, and, and other tasks like that. I found it was a really rewarding experience being at the Malahat, particularly in that it, it made me worry less about or, or take it less personally when, when work was rejected of mine, partly because the discussions that happen in an editorial meeting are rich, and, and we discuss work that's, that's great, but we can't accept it all. So, so it can really just be the hinge of one person's well-spoken argument for or against the poem that could make it included. So really, it really is a lot of the pressure for me just to see a bit more how it worked on the inside. Those, I'm sure, are, are great words of comfort to everyone who's received a rejection slip who's a writer just to know that it's uh, just a bit on that process but I think that's a real honor at this stage in your career to be on the board and and speaking of honors you as you mentioned you won the Bronwyn Wallace Award that's for emerging writers and that carried a nice healthy cash bonus I I believe Um, but I think that's another another great honor and that's for emerging writers under the age of 35 
a good honor. Can you tell us a bit about about receiving that, how that came about? Oh, I, I submitted, I guess it was November, last November, and I, I've submitted in the past. Uh, I didn't expect much. I heard the news that I was a finalist in, it might have been February or March, along with, with the other two finalists. And I remember I was in an office desk chair at a, an organics warehouse at the time, and when I received that call, I remember just spinning around on the chair in a big twirl and doing a little dance, just just because it's uh, so many awards, it's, it's arbitrary, not arbitrary, but it, it, it can be really down to personal taste as to who wins, but just to have that affirmation, and it was a very welcome time for it for me. Uh, the actual award ceremony was lovely. The Writers' Trust treated all three of us so well, and the three of us became really uh, good friends. Anne-Marie Terza and Raul Fernandez. I knew Anne-Marie because she was in... She's in the writing group uh, that I have at, in Victoria. There's a small group of us that meet and exchange poems. And, and she's always been a, a long uh, and valued editor of my work. And for both of us to be finalists was delightful. But the ceremony itself was, you know, a nervous affair. I drank quite a bit of wine to compensate for the anxiety and just waited to hear the announcement. But it was, it was lovely. And there's been some opportunities or small opportunities that have come out of the award. Not to mention the money, which, of course, is, is uh, welcome as well. Well, I think writers will always write whether they get awards or not, but it's always nice to get the objective opinion for sure. I think it might be time for another poem. Have you got one uh, teed up there? I do. Now, this one's called Winter Night. I wrote it thinking of uh, a friend of mine on construction sites uh, named Travis, uh, a fellow who, who's been injured so much in any number of ways and suffers migraines. I think this summer his the ligaments holding his ribs to his spine tore and he broke the carpal of his right thumb for a third time. And every summer he suffers some kind of injury and, and nosebleeds and migraines. He's almost a curse, but he's, he's one of the nicest people I know. Anyway, this was a poem I wrote thinking of him. Uh, and it, it just takes that moment when you know you're having a migraine and you can't do anything to stop it, but it hasn't started yet, essentially. So a night shift. It's called Winter Night. Inside the half-built tower after shift, the heaters thrum and fan within the hoarded corridor. Outer walls, stairwells, hemorrhaging where he stares. The orange tarpaulin winging reflectively the untamed window of the fourth floor. The boiler room, locked units, gypsum rock sheathing the studded perimeter, a coat of white paint wafting. He watches shadows from the hall splay across the mint and snubs his cigarette in a sack of hardware at his feet, the foreman's interfering din far off. The work this season is mostly custodial, sweeping, tracking halogens for the bricklayers, carting debris in wheelbarrows, pumping vats of water leaked in from the fluted Q-deck, drilling holes, hasping doors, and banding pallets for the boom lift. The night's a 12-hour life tacked to the board with every loopy, underfunded sleep. The broom's a milky blot, the jack of faucets, even his ashen boots, all a slurring cargo through his eyes, a gravid focus forewarning the rough of pain in half an hour. If his truck's cache of pills is gone, which he fears it is, his head is wide as the street, wadded with 
soot and snow, any trace of light like kibbled glass, zippering the brain's nervous cleave, an optic clutching that leaves him curled in any shuttered closet he finds. Good for nothing the rest of the restless night. But that's in half an hour. Now he starts another cigarette. The probing blood behind his eyes reminds him of the lake in Creston, paved with ice, that winter he was canned from the welding crew. His urge to yell wafted like the spray from a stricken rooster's neck, a jammed pipe in the seat of himself, pinnacling to a popped release. The air's chilled slide winnowing the smoke, his thoughts beyond the rectangular fray. Himself even sliding through, tractioned, the aspen leaves glassily blanched, the tower itself crystals where rain collided yesterday with plastic and steel. Stars, meanwhile, teeming the two o'clock's grim, the prospering convolutions of clouds, yes, the excruciated aging star. Great imagery, and I can see why you won the prize. Kibbled glass, pinnacled to a popped release. Uh, great imagery, great sound, great cadence to to the poetry. And I think you've got another poem lined up uh, for us to read. Is that correct? That's cor- that's right. The poem is called the Prologue for the Age of Consequence. It takes a, a more mythological look at the idea of a, of a tower, not just a literal tower, but a, a, a mythological tower that, that's this sort of this hovering god, if you will, behind this kind of work and the, the work of industry. Prologue for the Age of Consequence. The tower begins in the slaughterhouse hours of Troy's burning after morning. Beyond the mosquito netting screen, where throats boil and bloom under the mercantile heat mad flies. Begins in the meteor trail, where the gilded leader falls. When Descartes isolates stone from stone, churches ossify the dome, these flowers frost and fade. Begins when banks fix interest, revolution, liberty, sluggish stove lights squinting off and on and off. We deplanted currency, tribes. Machines began to count even the motes of the soul, adrift in the microwavable, avatistic country of the digital. Googling the gloss, the Teflon photographic ping that might or might not prove the spirit, we upheeled currencies, tribes, ethernetting shadow structures, circumscribing right through a fiber-optic hub. So the tower plumbed, it spired, how or by whatever. Fox reports by wire that proper-minded citizens can trust in common sense, if by consensus, if by God. Forty stories, eighty or a hundred, the tower's base crusts and clogs. Of such height, pressures redisperse, glass panes sucked out, not in, as hurricanes hit. Girders twisted back and forth like a door handle's rattled turning. We say its columns weren't fire-rated. We say a lot of things. The impossible happening, as the story insists. Our lady streaked with oil, blood. Your brother come too from the clay. Girders melted. Hundreds of concrete stories dissolved. Three falling, purified at the teleprompter. Thermite smudged in the holy smoke. Across this vagrant city, the programmatic cyber-technate claim, a stooped figure carries news. The bedsheet hackled at his neck conceals his forearms flaking and corruption. Perhaps we've known it, burning these many lives. The tower will erupt. Black in Detroit, New York, Madrid, Montreal. 
the government clone itself as banks fail or faint and architects rewrite law. The Commonwealth gimleted. So much siphon, grain zeroing worldwide, aquifers, rivers, this unexpected age. The tower fulgent with suck. And I congratulate you as well on your reading style and reading voice. It, again, it's, it's just good to hear. Thank you. We're almost out of time, and as a matter of fact, I think we are out of time, aren't we, Colin? Just about. But first, I just want to thank Garth and Andrea for being on the show. Thanks very much for listening to Wild Orphans Community Arts Show on CFUV 101.9.